Welcome back to the Backyard Professor live sessions on Mormon Discussion, Inc. I am discussing the book Method Infinite, sharing various ideas on Freemasonry, the parallels, the importance of the allegories, the beauty of the symbolism with Joseph Smith and his ideas, not only on Freemasonry, but on Mormonism, on the Mormon Temple Endowment, and basically throughout life, improving his own understandings of doctrine and history and legend as he incorporated so much of Freemasonry within Mormonism all the way through his life. This is one of the themes in Method Infinite, written by Dr. Nick Letursky, Cheryl Bruno, and Joe Steve Swick III, just out about a week ago is when I got mine. There are some of my friends whom I have talked to who have not yet received their copies, but they're on the way. And so we will be discussing this among other topics and subjects, various book reviews that will come out. I'm going to keep my eye out for them. Tonight, I want to talk a little bit about the main Masonic legend in just a, unfortunately, this, this particular moment is going to be a somewhat quick version. I'm not going to get into a lot of depth, but I'm going to get into enough to show why I believe this particular allegory based on Old Testament information dating back to the Solomon Temple, at least as the Old Testament writers put it together as they told their story about King Solomon. The importance of the Hiram Abiff legend in Freemasonry cannot be over-exaggerated. Joseph Smith would have picked up on those vibes and incorporated some ideas of his own. And that's what I want to talk about a little bit tonight. Hey, Lorena, welcome. Wendy Rowland, good to see you again. Hello, Mark Christman. Yeah, baby. Right on. Gail Capson, good to see you again. Going to be doing a boatload of materials this weekend. Stay tuned as you can. We're going to flood the information out for the public to enjoy. In Method Infinite, page 415. Now, this is basically a somewhat of a recap, a summation of the entire chapter, but I thought this had some poignant ideas in relation to something else I want to read to you about Hiram Abiff, the legend. The death of the Mormon prophet at the age of 39 was a devastating blow to the Latter-day Saints, and they struggled mightily to make some sense of it because, quite frankly, to them, it was truly unexpected, and it just shook them to their roots. So many of the apostles were states and states away campaigning for Joseph Smith's presidency in the United States government. Uh, and they had no idea this was going to happen. So it was quite a rude awakening. Connecting his death with the murder of Hiram Abiff, of all people, in Freemasonry, himself a symbol of Christ. Now, this is interesting. 
was a way to give meaning to this horrific loss for the early Mormons. The associations between the Masonic legend and the final chapter of Joseph Smith's life are remarkable. These were recognized and they were perpetuated by Joseph's followers. And this is one of the points that we have uh, technically not read a great deal about or heard a great deal about one way because the majority of associates with Joseph Smith when he was martyred. Now we understand from the Joseph Smith Papers project that he had formed the Council of the 50. And this group was to help him campaign for the presidency of the United States. The vast majority of that August Council body of men were Freemasons. This did not cease on Joseph Smith's death. Um, they themselves were pulling together the ideas of Hiram Abiff relating it to Joseph Smith. This helps us grasp the significance of the deep layered influence that Masonry had for decades in early Mormonism. And that's something I've not seen emphasized before or, or much elaborated on. And yet Method Infinite caught this and gave us a wonderful little discourse here. These were recognized and perpetuated by the prophet's followers. Their imaginations captured by the symbols they have learned from masonry. Hiram Abiff is one manifestation of the mystery school hero. This drama is foreshadowed in the biblical account of the Christian Messiah. But the formula is even more ancient. What this is, is the concept of the sacred king destined for sacrifice. Now, remarkably enough, and it is in the Joseph Smith papers, and I have done a video on this subject in the secret council of the 50, they were ordained kings also. Not just prophets and priests, but they were ordained kings. Joseph Smith and Brigham Young, Heber C. Kimball and Wilford Woodruff and John Taylor. They were anointed and made kings as well. This helps us grasp why the rest of the followers after Joseph Smith was killed would have associated his martyrdom with the martyrdom of the king, hero, and the sacrifice, which is a gigantic and a very long-standing tradition through the millennia of the sacrifice of the king. Very interesting. This was how his early followers made sense of his death. Quite interesting. This king who was sacrificed, who rises from death for this reason, that the earth might become regenerated and uplifted 
by divine power. Now, this, this particular theme is very powerful in Freemasonry, as Method Infinite shows. It is also exquisitely elaborated on by Algis Uzdavenis in his book, Philosophy as a Right, R-I-T-E, not R-I-G-H-T, but a Right of Rebirth. And I will do some conceptual themes related with within and with Freemasonry and some of the doctrines that Joseph Smith taught. I'll be doing that in some of my discussions either tomorrow on Saturday or Sunday, where we will get the full grasp of the significance of that in the ancient mysteries, which, of course, Masonry claims a heritage with. One of the main attractive points to Joseph Smith. This is why it was not just a, oh, oh, hey, I got to come up with something quick. Oh, hey, look, there's some Freemason stuff that looks cool. No, it wasn't that at all. And it certainly wasn't because Freemasonry was an antagonistic or uh, a negative item at all in any aspect in Joseph Smith's curricula. It was all positive. It was useful. It was powerful. It was spiritually uplifting from Joseph Smith's usage of it, including family or friends. <laughs> or close acquaintances, or neighbors, everyone was Masonic in his era. So this legend of being re-risen and regenerating the earth, as well as having a regeneration of life, well, the Joseph Smith legend begin with the young initiate experiencing a rite of passage that brought him directly into contact with the divine. And they're hinting at the first vision, something that I do believe that Doug Vincent and I are going to discuss tomorrow in my interview with him. He, he uh, we, We've kind of uh, worked together to discuss some of the interesting Masonic connections with the first vision. His hero's journey, Joseph Smith's hero journey, set him on a quest, and this brought forth sacred scripture and to restore the lost word, a very powerful concept. Along the way, he struggled to build a holy city. He almost succeeded with Mavu. He developed ritual ceremonies to usher his people into a state of initiation so that they could experience the same journey to become kings and queens and priestesses. Well, finally, thrust out of his kingdom, he entered the condition of lonely persecuted hero. The addition of Masonic overtones added meaning to what was otherwise a futile, bloody, bloody death to his successors and his people. They needed to find something to latch onto, and this was powerful for them. Doesn't mean it has to be powerful for us today, but it was very powerful for them.
God would hear the prophet's cry of distress, even if no one else did. His public martyrdom made him even more powerful in death than he was in life. So, though the Master Mason's word was lost by three great knocks at the death of the Master Hiram, it becomes each Mason's duty to recover that symbolic word. So, the Nauvoo Masons would not end their work with the prophet's death. The funeral of Joseph and Hiram included a procession of the various Mormon lodges. Were you aware of that? You never read that in history, did you? <laughs> you never got that in an institute manual or any of the gospel handbook series. You never got that in the gospel essentials. You never even got that in any of the so-called advanced priesthood meetings, high priest core meetings, or Relief Society lessons. And yet there were processions from the numerous Masonic lodges at Joseph Smith's death. See, this again gives us the way to the gravity, the significance, the implication, the overarching dynamic of power and acquiring greater light, greater love, greater meaning through Masonic Mormonism, even after death. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? Yeah. These continued to work tirelessly. His Mormon followers, after his death, they continued producing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of more Mormon Masons until, right up to and until, they were booted out of Nauvoo a few years later. It never did cease. The emphasis, the uh, the integrated lifestyle never left them until they got into the Great Salt Lake. It just continued right along because that was part and parcel of the gospel that his early Mormon followers knew is what Joseph Smith restored. Very interesting to see this, this uh, dynamic um, context continuing on, even though Joseph Smith was dead and gone. The work, the ideology, the legends, and the initiations never stopped until Nauvoo was destroyed. Now, that's fascinating to know. That's something Mormon writers have never let us know. So, uh, though persecution and conflict continued for years, the saints were no longer committed to work within the established political or social system. Brigham Young would pick up where his predecessor left off, presiding over the merging of Mormon lodges and dictating the rapidity of Masonic work and LDS temple work simultaneously together. One wasn't more important than the other. Now, see, uh, I read the other night out of E. Cecil McGavin's materials where he said it was minimal, 
That's simply not true. It was not minimal. It continued on side by side with the Mormon endowment in the temple for two years, 1844 to 1846. I, I think technically that was going to be about a year and a half, not two years, not, not two full years. So, so this is interesting in the method infinite. Now, I've discovered in the uh, in the Arturo de Hoyos text, really excellent text on uh, Albert Pike's Esoterica. Uh, how's everybody doing? Want to see who all's here? Patty Cake, yeah, welcome back. You made it. Yeah, we like it. Mark and Debbie Joe. Okay, good. Now here is here is the really one of the more startling things that I read when I first got this book on Albert Pike's Esoterica uh, is how he elaborated on this Hiram Abiff figure, which yes, he's mentioned in the Old Testament um, as a brass worker uh, at Solomon's Temple, but. It's not the historical nature of the man that made him so important. That's not what convinced people to enjoy the symbolism of the man, Hiram Abiff. It was the allegory. And, and with an allegory, what you can do is you can coincide the, uh, the prophetic symbolism, the, the spiritual symbolism, to oneself. So that the symbol, the allegory that is entirely about someone else can be incorporated into you. And through the ritual, you may participate in the sacred event yourself. That's kind of the, the means of identification of people acquiring their hero journey through ancient heroes. This was the idea with Hiram and Biff. Albert Pike says, Freemasonry in England from the time when it was no longer wholly consists of gathering of working men. This was for the workers or the community. It was a Christian and a Trinitarian society. That's very interesting, isn't it? Uh, so it was based in Christianity, and Hiram being to these after the Mason, after the Master Mason degree was introduced, Hiram to the workmen in Masonry in England back in the 1700s. He was the representative of Jesus Christ the divine word. But to a more limited number, though, its symbols had a more general and a more ancient meaning, concealing from the vulgar and teaching to a few adepts the doctrines of the hermetic philosophy and alchemy. And I, I thought that was just really interesting. And then he does, of course, show that the uh, the square and the compasses were definitely a hermetic symbolism. And of course, Hiram being one of the builders of King Solomon's temple, one of the workers, the master worker, would of course had the square and the compasses. And that way it ties in with the hermetic angles for the Masons 
this gave it uh, an antiquity, which, of course, would have certainly caught the attention of Joseph Smith. A and we know it did. So now this was quite interesting, too. Hiram the Artificer is the hero of the legend, and the workmen on the temple were the first apprentices and fellow workers. Hiram represents the divine word, the demiorgus, by whom everything was made that was made, whom and not the father, it is the demiurge, whom masonry styles, the grand architect of the universe. So there's there's a little bit more uh, added on to this idea. The Temple of Solomon is a symbol of the universe. So again, see, it, we're not we're not saying it's literally the universe, but it was a symbol of the universe to the Masons. It was ordered by the will or the power of deity. It was planned by his wisdom, and it was created by his word. And those three are represented in masonry by the king of Tyre, the king of Israel, and Hiram the Artificer. So I wanted to share that idea with you, that theme real quick. Uh, I don't want to do that one. I think it's this one that I wanted to do next. Oh, yeah, yeah, this this theme of light, which actually in some of Joseph's sermons, and, and I'm looking into this, I'll find more of this on his, uh, uh, the theology, the philosophy, the underlying impression of the principle of light. Uh, and we get that in the temple. And, and I do say it, and I'm actually not being mockery. I, I'm not being mocking when I say we are looking for further light and knowledge that Father promised. I'm not just simply... Uh, imitating the Mormon view, we really are doing that as people, as a humanity. We are doing that. The light of the sun symbolized the direct light of revelation coming from the deity. And this is within the Masonic parameters, remember. And of course, the sun, I mean, come on, that is the God of this earth. That is the symbol par excellence in absolutely all of the ancient mysteries, even the modern ones, simply because there it is, the largest, most important thing in our lives. Without the sun, literally, there is no life. Therefore, the sun is the god of this world. From that respect, you can truly take that quite literally. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. So this idea of the light of the day of the sun, yes. And this is the uh, the light coming into the soul directly and enlightening. And the light of the moon. Now, the interesting thing about the light of the moon, of course, it's less intense, less bright, uh, smaller. It is a reflected light from the originating light orb, the sun. This principle of a reflected light being lesser is now allegorically turned into a remarkable philosophical theme that certainly attracted Joseph Smith to Freemasonry. And this is on page uh, 
99 of Alfred Pike's Esoterica by Arturo de Hoyos. He says, now this reflected light of the sun symbolized the shining into one soul of the light from another. The light of revelation reflected from one intellect into another intellect and illuminating and enlightening it. I thought, well, all right, that's, that's pretty good. That's not bad. And this is wonderful. Again, this uh, philosophy, this Masonic theme, is echoed in some of Joseph Smith's, either his sermons or his teachings or his scriptures. The theme is when an initiate becomes a master Mason. He sees both points of the compass above the square laying on the altar. And the principle here, according to Pike, is this is to teach him that he is supposed to have attained that condition in which the moral, the intellectual, and the spiritual forces of his nature have become superior to the material forces, the animal nature and forces and energies that are also within us, right? So moral sense and reason have the habitual mastery over his appetites and passion. See, this is the this is the application of the symbols into personal conduct in life. I mean, this is this is how we utilize symbols, right? So the divine in him transcends the human. And, and this is on page uh, 100 in Albert Pike's Esoteric. That, that's the point I'm driving to, is the divine in him transcends the human, and there is in him that equilibrium of the forces of his nature, which constitutes excellence and entitles him to honor. This is what we're missing in our society. So few people in our distracted culture honor anybody else. This, this can be a powerful thing to bring back in for our own better collective good. This theme of honor, because you are dealing with a being that has divinity within. You know, if you look at it that way, you might really start changing how we interact with our neighbors and friends and people, right? So, so there's that theme. And then one other idea that I wanted to share out of Pike's wonderful uh, esoterica, and this will be on page 106 now. Again, this is one of my favorite Masonic books. I've read it many times, and I just get something new out of it every time. Uh, the universe is the idea of the divine wisdom realized. 
All right, that's interesting. As the making under the direction of the inventor, perhaps without his own hands touching it, of the machine of wood and metal is but the expression in these of the model in the mind of the inventor. It is in the universe that we see all of the divine wisdom that it has disclosed or will in this life disclose to us. In it alone, the universe, in it alone, we attain unto any knowledge of that wisdom. It is the soul of the universe. And therefore, the universe, its body, is said to be the second God. Fascinating, isn't it? In man is the divine word. See, again, this emphasis, and this is on page 106. There is divinity, there is something divine that in one manner or another, in one way or another, maybe uh, in some to a greater degree or a lesser degree, but there's always something involved in humanity that has to do with the divine. I think we've lost that to a large extent in our culture. And this is one of the reasons why I want to make a big deal about this method infinite, because it basically, it has the potential, I'll say it this way, it has the potential to help us refocus onto a greater thing, a, a greater way for us to begin to magnify others, which in turn will magnify ourselves in value, in, in honor. That, that I would think today that would be pretty darn important, right? So in man is the divine word, the voice and the utterance of the divine wisdom, every human intellect has in it something of the divine nature. Now, that's worth sitting on. That's worth just kind of contemplating. You know, I was, I was taught by a, a wisdom teacher decades ago, actually. Though, if you end up being uh, uptight, you just, you, you can't sleep, you can't rest. If you get up tight, one of the great things you can do for your own soul is to just get away from town, go find someplace that's quiet, that has a, a river, a creek, a little stream, whatever, and just sit down. Just stop. Sit down. Listen, look. Become a part of that. And I'm here to tell you that works. Th that is actually a spectacular boost. And, and I know this sounds weird. I, I, I get it. Yeah. But really, that that is a good boost to your energy. And I mean the bodily energy, you know, 
using your arms, your legs, and all that. But not only just bodily, but your 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 spirit, your soul, your mind. Uh, there is something about contacting the real in quiet and let it wash over you. I'm just saying that that's kind of a that's kind of a nifty thing to do. And so, and then finally, this last idea. Oh, and this is yeah, this was the big one. Uh, I don't think I'll be able to. Uh, oh, I've got 32. Oh, five likes. Thank you, you guys. Very nice. Hey, Mike Weist. How are you? Okay, it looks like you guys are having fun. Yeah, this is talking about Hiram being spoken of in the, the Hebrew Old Testament. A skillful man endowed with intelligence, just like the king. Masonry, of course, makes him an architect. And the Masonic associate of the two kings. We even hear of him in the legend as our grand master. And elsewhere, he's the grand junior warden. So the theme is the, uh, the true word of a master Mason. Uh, the wisdom and power of the deity. Uh, he represents the divine word on the human uh, scale. On the human side, that's kind of interesting. Or the utterance of divine wisdom in the human intellect and understanding and is the type of every thinker who has in any age been made the apostle of civil and religious liberty. And that's a very important concept because we don't talk about that anymore. We are losing that battle and we don't even know it. That's another reason why we probably would do well to kind of re-emphasize some of these incredible, very important individual themes such as honor, and our own personal liberty, which is freedom, and quit allowing ourselves to become so distracted all the time by absolutely everything else going on, which is, unfortunately, trivia. trivial. Trivial. It, it just is. So anyway, that's kind of an interesting uh, thought there. And here it is again, and I'm on page 118 there, and then I'm on page 119. The uh, Hiram, the architect, was symbolically Christ. Again, this, this is emphasized, the word, who was in the beginning with God, of course. And uh, this identifies him with Hermes, who was, now this is the Greek, the Hermes Trismegistus, who was also equated with the Egyptian Thoth, right? The master of the Lodge. Yeah. So Hiram is the symbol of the thinker and the apostle. Uh, he is the symbol of the divine word, the spirit of intellectual liberty. Is this why Mormonism downplays Freemasonry? It, it's kind of a tough question in a way, but does Mormonism appear to us to want to boost 
help the individuals gain their intellectual liberty? Not that I'm aware of. Their free thought? Not that I'm aware of. And yet Albert Pike says this. Their free speech? How about their free conscience? If it is one thing Mormonism does better than any other religions, they sear your conscience with guilt. <laughs> and that actually does enslave you to their ideology, to their desires, if you buy into that. And of course, the whole cheap Mormon pop psychology is to convince you that you have to buy into that or you're a, what, a, a terrible sinner and nobody wants to sin. So they focus on you always confessing your sins. They focus on you being a sinner and you become what? A sinner. And that is what they want of you. Because only they have the priesthood authority to help you get rid of their sins. You notice how the sneaky insinuation of a middleman between you and God has occurred in that. And it's entirely unnecessary, completely superfluous. But you'll never hear that from them, will you? Not any more than you'll hear about the spirit of intellectual liberty. I really like that. It's on page 119. I just wanted to get that in established with Hiram. Now, and, and the other reason that I wanted to bring that in is because there was, uh, I can't remember the exact time or the name, but there was an older gentleman who had... Uh, been discussing the beasts in the book of Revelation, and the Quorum of the Twelve had gotten together, and they they did not like his particular take on on the the impression, uh, the meaning of of the beasts in the book of Revelation, and they were they were attempting to get him in line to to uh, grasp. Uh, the true doctrine, the true interpretation, the, the actual, the most logical, realistic, spiritual interpretation. And they just couldn't seem to do it. And so they were actually getting together as a group of men and getting ready to kick this guy out of the church. And Joseph Smith came along and he said, bullshit. He said, there is no way in hell you're going to kick out someone for having a different belief than you do. Shame on you. There is no way. You give me the liberty to believe what I want. You give me the liberty, the freedom, the power, the personal integrity to believe, say, and hope what I think is true. Don't you dare tell me that we all have to conform to someone else's view. 
Joseph Smith was very adamant about that. I mean, he cussed them out. He said, there is no way you give me the liberty to believe as I want. That's the gospel. Because the real gospel, the actual real gospel, gives us that intellectual freedom, that intellectual liberty, that spiritual truth of freedom. You sure don't get that in today's Mormonism, do you? <laughs> wow. Yeah, see, th this is the dynamic contrast. And Joseph Smith said, uh, by proving contraries, truth is made manifest. Well, all right. There's a very quite powerful contrary right there. Joseph Smith's version of spiritual intellectual liberty for each person, not conformity, liberty, freedom, and you're still welcome in. And today's heinous, mind-bogglingly narrow, lazy learning attitude of, oh, you believe or you're out of here. You teach what we teach. You will believe what we believe. And you will conform. Because in the priesthood, you follow the brethren. Joseph Smith said, ain't no way that's happened. Even Brigham Young followed the footsteps of Joseph Smith. He actually told the saints in a gathering in general conference, something you will never hear <laughs> in today's Mormon general conference. Joe, or, uh, Brigham Young actually said, I fear that you, the congregation, the people, I'm terrified that all you're going to do is sit back and believe everything I tell you. He said, man, don't do that. Don't go there. I want you to use your brains. Turn on your mind. It's the greatest part of being human. It is the greatest gift. Utilize it. Man, you don't hear stuff like that in general conference today, do you? Not even close. Such is the, I would, I would put it as, instead of an evolution of Mormonism, the devolution of Mormonism. Do you have honorable integrity to your person in uh, your individual, here in your heart, in your mind? Do you have that intellectual, expansive liberty and freedom within an organized religious structure? That might be a question worth exploring. I, I would say no, just off the top of my head. And I think you'd be damn hard to try to refute that, honestly. So, so again, the themes, the, the attitude, I'll say, the basic uh, philosophy of the individual and the relationship between the individual and the group uh, 
um, is one of the attractions in Joseph Smith to this Freemasonry thing. You won't hear that <laughs> from Mormon authors and scholars either, unfortunately. See, and it's it's uh, it's sad. It's too bad that I mean I don't want to become accusatory, you know. But it's too bad that that's the direction Mormonism has gone to is mere meager conform. They Hugh Nibley warned him way back when in his commencement speech at uh, BYU. He taught him the difference between dynamic, fulfilling, inspiring, ascending, elevating, spiritually useful leadership versus meager, boring, brain-dead, lazy learning management. And Mormonism in Toto from that day on ran straight for the management. <laughs> it's no wonder nobody wants to be involved with them anymore. They put you to sleep. It's almost like they intend to. Uh, because, and that can be terrifying, when you realize they do intend to. Because a thinker within an organization is a threat to their control. And since there's more of them than the single individual, of course, they can kowtow you and intimidate you, come outright and threaten you if they desire. So, so this is quite the... Uh, this is a place where the discussion can get to if you, if you, and we might, but uh, I'm just letting you be aware. It is this stellar fundamental from the beginning eternity of liberty. The individual has the power of free will and he can use his liberty to cause him to take just actions which enhances wisdom I think that's what attracted Joseph Smith to masonry because that principle is involved in their allegories. It's, it's really kind of interesting to check it out. So anyway, um, I've gone on long enough. Thank you so much for attending again. Now, I'm going to go ahead. Um, I was going to do another one tonight, but I, I'm actually tired. Um, I'm going to. I've had a good, excellent day at work. It was very, very hot tonight. 98 degrees. For me, that's pretty toasty. So I'm going to call it good for tonight. And again, tomorrow, in between breaks, I am going to just saturate the Backyard Professor Live with phenomenal information. I will be dealing with Method Infinite.
and I will be bringing in other things, just other materials, just like I did tonight with Albert Pike's exquisite esoterica. And, and I have more of that. I have some wonderful interviews I'll do tomorrow with the authors of Method Infinite, as well as others. So in the meantime, remember, be good, do well, have fun, sleep well. Uh, I look forward to seeing as many of you as can make it tomorrow. Come on in. I don't know when I'll start. Honest, I don't know if it'll be six in the morning, seven in the morning, eight in the morning. It doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. But I will be here at 10 o'clock to interview Dr. Letursky, and that'll be my first of three really magnificent interviews. And then I've got a great one on Sunday. I'm hoping to get a hold of Dan Vogel so that I can have him on the telephone as well. We'll see. So anyway, I would love to see every one of you come back and enjoy yourselves. Have a good chat. I've got a lot of great materials I'll share with you that will, the intent is simply this, our culture, and unfortunately, the, I hate to keep picking on them, but they're the ones that are making their own bed, so they have to sleep in it. Not only our culture here in America, but the organized religions shrink us. <laughs> That's too bad. Here. Here. And in our guts. Mind, heart, guts. We are expansive creatures, and so this limiting uh, this this desire to curtail individual liberty because you're not mature enough, say you're not uh, you're not intellectual enough, you're not you're not wise enough, etc. All of that is a brainwash. Uh, you don't have to accept that opinion. I don't. Now, one time, I'm afraid I probably did in my life, but I don't now. And I am much better off for it. And so it is this, this, uh, this ascension to the light, which opens up instead of limits and closes you, that is <laughs> our goal. And that's what I'm looking at. That's what I'm working towards. So I will see you guys tomorrow. Have a good night. Rest. Be nice to each other, and I will catch up to you tomorrow. Be on whenever you can. If you even can't, no problem. It's all recorded for YouTube, and you can watch the videos. So thank you for all of your support. Don't forget to go to thebackyardprofessor.org and hit that donate button if you would be so kind. Doesn't matter what amount. That's irrelevant. It doesn't matter if it's just a one-time or a weekly or a monthly or even an annual. It's all good. It's okay. So you support me. I support you. You scratch my back. I scratch yours. We have a good time. We laugh together. We cry together. We learn together. We learn how to discriminate together. And we all ascend upward, which is the good direction symbolically, psychologically. And so <laughs> I say, yeah, let's head that direction. That makes sense to me. So, Okay. I'll see you guys on the upswing tomorrow. 
Thanks again. Appreciate y'all.